You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. Well, in 1947, famous author J.R.R. Tolkien wrote an essay about fairy stories. That's what they say in England. They call them fairy stories. We call them fairy tales. They're the same thing. So he wrote an essay about fairy stories to show that they have deep significance beyond just bedtime stories, that they're actually more than just children's literature. He said, fantasy worlds with wizards and dragons and hobbits and dwarves and powerful rings and epic quests, they actually nourish the mind and the heart. They offer this momentary escape from one world to another. They help us to remember the things we've taken for granted and ultimately they remind us and assure us that there can in fact be happy endings. And in this essay to describe what makes uh, these happy endings and these fairy stories so powerful, there just wasn't a word to really capture what he was going for. So he made up a new word. He coined a new word. And and he said that all fairy stories feature what he called a eucatastrophe. I'm going to help you be smarter today. Eucatastrophe, new word. What he did is he took the prefix eu which, makes, which means good, as in like eulogy, a good word. He put the, word e, the, the prefix E-U on catastrophe to, to make this new word. So he was saying all good fairy stories feature a good kind of catastrophe. So according to Tolkien, a catastrophe happens at the darkest moment in the story. It's that moment when, when you're reading it or you're watching it and you're like, there, there's just no way there can be a turn. That all hope seems lost. It seems as if the enemy has won, the good guys are going down, and there's just no way that this conflict is going to be resolved. And it's at that moment when there is a sudden, joyous turn. It's the powerful moment in the story when everything's sad becomes untrue. And all of us have experienced this catastrophe because it, it, it delivers this powerful, this deep emotional reaction. Tolkien writes, in its fairy tale or other world setting, catastrophe is a sudden and miraculous grace, never to be counted on to recur. It does not deny the existence of discatastrophe, of sorrow and failure, In fact, the possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. What eucatastrophe denies in the face of much evidence, if you will, it denies universal final defeat and insofar is evangelium or gospel, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of this world, poignant as grief. And he goes on to say, catastrophe can give to a child or a man that hears it when that turn comes, a catch of the breath, a beating and the lifting of the heart near to or indeed often accompanied by tears. As keen as that given by any form of literary art and having a peculiar quality. So in The Lord of the Rings, where, which he's famous for, it's that moment when Gollum unexpectedly falls into the fires of Mount Doom and ultimately destroys that one ring. In the Star Wars universe, in A New Hope, 
It's that moment when Luke flies his X-wing down the Meridian Trench to deliver that one in a million shot to destroy the Death Star. And Frozen, it's that moment when Anna, uh, Anna throws herself in front of the sword to save Elsa. And in so doing, what does she do? She demonstrates an act of true love and it breaks that Frozen curse. Well, this morning we begin a new series through the book of Exodus. And like all good stories, it has a very compelling eucatastrophe. There's this moment where grace, sudden and miraculous, comes flooding in. And as you're reading the story, particularly for the first time, it lifts your heart. And it teaches you that there can be, in fact, happy endings. Exodus tells the story of God's miraculous deliverance of his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And what's more, the book of Exodus functions as this prototype of how God rescues his people. It's the second book in the Bible. Genesis is about the beginnings and about um, how, where we came from. And it explores um, the, 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 the great whys of the world. Why is there brokenness? Why is there sin? Where did we come from? And Exodus gives us this prototype in this grand narrative form of how God is going to redeem his people. It is the grand drama of redemption. And so over the next several months, Exodus will teach us to long and look for that great eucatastrophe of human history, and particularly God's salvation of sinners and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so this morning, my job is to give you an overview of the book of Exodus. It's like a, a teaser, a trailer, so that you will be hooked in, locked in for the next several months as we walk through this book. And so to do that, I've divided the book of Exodus into three big themes. There's lots of themes that I think here are three in particular that as we go through the book of Exodus, you will see recur over and over. So first, we'll see the purpose of redemption. So if you're a note taker, that's our first heading, the purpose of redemption. In this book, you will find that God redeems and liberates and delivers his people out of bondage and slavery. But what I want us to find out is what is the purpose of that redemption? We're going to find that redemption is never aimless. It's never without aim. It's never without purpose. Exodus will show us that God has a clear and definitive purpose for deliverance. Second, we'll see a pattern of redemption. A pattern of redemption. God not only redeems, but Exodus will teach us there, that there's a pattern to the way that God redeems. And if we will learn this pattern, it will help you as you read the Bible uh, uh, over the course of your life. You are going to start to see, oh, there is an Exodus-shaped pattern of redemption that will occur over and over and over again to the point where we get to the cross you're gonna be like it is so exodus shaped and then when you get to the cross you realize oh the exodus is actually cross shaped it's a cruciform shape and it was always pointing to jesus when you learn how to read the bible well the old testament informs the new testament and the new testament informs the Old Testament, and they work together in this symbiotic relationship. So we want to learn this pattern so that we can uh, see how it points to Christ and how Christ helps us understand the Exodus. There's a pattern of redemption. And third and finally, we will see the person of redemption. 
Friends, God is our redeemer. It's one of the ways that we know him best. And and simply put, there is just no redemption without God. And the book of Exodus will introduce us to the name. In the scripture reading we heard this morning, um, as the Lord is speaking to Moses, he says, up until now I have not revealed my personal name. We're going to find out God's personal redemptive name in the book of Exodus. We're going to learn about who he is, his character, his glory. At one point, Moses will say, show me your glory. What an amazing moment when God reveals his glory. And all of this knowledge about the character, the nature, the person of God is meant to foster and cultivate our relationship and devotion towards God. Because you cannot love what you do not know. And so the book of Exodus will teach us to know God so that we might love God. If you're taking notes, that's our outline this morning. My hope in our time together is to see the purpose, the pattern, and the person of redemption. So let's start chapter 1, verse 1. Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Book of Exodus, second book in the Bible. It's the second volume in the books of Moses, right? And it picks up right where Genesis left off. And if you remember in our time, in our study, or your own reading of Genesis, Genesis 37 to 50 tells about Jacob's 11th son, Joseph. You remember Joseph? He has his own redemptive story. He has his own eucatastrophe, right? His brothers betray him. He's sold into slavery. He's falsely accused. He is thrown into prison. And there's this moment where he tells this other prisoner to, 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 uh, if he ever gets an audience with the king, to, to not forget him. But we find out that he's forgotten. And it seems like all hope is lost and he's just gonna be forgotten to rot away in the prison dungeon in Egypt. And yet there's this sudden joyous, turn of events that leads to his salvation. He's delivered out of the depths of his prison. He's elevated. He goes from prisoner to to Pharaoh's right-hand man in charge of all of Egypt to help Pharaoh prepare for and survive a seven-year-long famine. And to show his gratitude, Pharaoh says, Joseph, bring your family here. I'm going to give you uh, the, the best land for your family to grow and to fill and to multiply. And that's exactly what happens. And with that invitation, Abraham's grandson Jacob leads his large family of 70 into Egypt to survive the famine. And in this introduction to Exodus, we find out that now about 400 years have passed. So over this time period, they've, they've grown fruitful and they have multiplied. Jacob and his sons have died. That, that family of 70 has greatly multiplied so that the land was filled with them. In other words, a family has become a people. This family has now become a nation. And now Moses is really intentional with his language here. Remember, he's the same author, 
Genesis and Exodus. In verse 7, maybe you, maybe you heard these words. He says the people of Israel were what? Fruitful. They multiplied and they filled the land. Now where have you heard that before? Genesis 1, right? To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So Moses is saying, hey, they're doing that. This was the the creation mandate, and now the people of God are being fruitful, they're multiplying, and they are filling the earth. And though we live in a sin-soaked, broken world, Genesis tells us that God's plan to redeem the world is going to happen through this chosen people. Remember in Genesis 3.15, we hear the first gospel, the first words of hope, that one day the serpent will be crushed by the seed of the woman. And now we see that that family, that, that, that seed line is growing. The people of God are thriving. They are multiplying. In other words, Moses is telling you, God's plan of redemption is still intact. Everything that you saw in Genesis is moving forward. But then we read in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies, fight against us, and escape from the land. So now conflict enters the plot. Over time, the influence and favor of Joseph fades. A new Pharaoh no longer sees the people of God as a blessing, but now as a threat. And again, you should be thinking, okay, in Genesis, we kept hearing like God will bless those who bless Abraham and his descendants and God will curse those who curse those, uh, those descendants of Abraham. And so we see a turn that the, the other Pharaoh who blessed Jacob or, and, and, or blessed Joseph was blessed, right? They survived this famine, but now there's a new Pharaoh who is going to curse the people of God. So conflict, enmity has entered into the narrative. And so motivated by this fear, this Pharaoh enslaves the people of God. Their freedom is taken. Their humanity has been reduced into machines of production. And if that weren't enough, we also find out that the Pharaoh instructs the Hebrew midwives to drown the Hebrew sons in the Nile. So it's a, it's, a, it's a plan of genocide. It, it, it's a way to wipe them out. And as the story unfolds, an unlikely hero emerges. There's a child who is born, but instead of being drowned in the river, his mother takes, which, which would take great courage and risk, she says, this boy is not getting thrown into the Nile. And so she makes a basket In fact, the Hebrew word for this basket is an ark. There's two times in the Bible where the word ark shows up. Genesis 6 with Noah's ark. And now in Exodus 2 with this little ark. This little tiny boat that the mother makes. And she puts him into it to save him. In the same way that the ark saved Noah and his family through the waters of judgment. Moses is saved through the waters of judgment as well. And as God's providence would have it, Pharaoh's daughter finds this this little child in the basket and she decides to keep him and raise him. And she names him Moses, which sounds like the Hebrew word to draw out. 
So his name sounds like what she did. She drew him out of the water, and that sounds like the Hebrew word. So she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So now Moses will grow up. He will have his own personal exodus experience, which we'll cover in the weeks to come. And at the ripe young age of 80 years old, he will meet the Lord in that famous burning bush passage. Exodus 3, 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning and yet it was not consumed. See, Moses had seen fire before and he'd seen bushes before, but usually when the fire is in the bush, it's consumed. So he's going, this is different than anything I have ever seen before. And so he's curious. So he, he turns to it and he wants to see what's going on. And as he does, the Lord speaks to him out of this bush. Exodus 3, and the Lord said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So come. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And here's his promise. I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. That when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. I'm going to repeat that last line. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And right there, there's the purpose statement. There's the purpose of this grand deliverance. See, the Lord reveals to him in the burning bush that he is none other than the God of his fathers. He is the covenant-keeping, promise-making God. He tells Moses he has seen the suffering of his people. He has heard their prayers for deliverance. And now he is on the move. And here we discover the purpose of God's redemption. Here it is. Deliverance is for devotion. I want that phrase to get locked into your mind that God's deliverance is for devotion. So let me explain. He is sending Moses to Pharaoh to bring his people out of Egypt to be with him. But it's not simply just let my people go so that they can be free and go do whatever they want to do. It's let my people go so that they may worship me. He is sending Moses to deliver his people from the tyranny of slavery into the freedom of knowing, loving, and following and serving God. You see it in verse 12. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You'll see it come up again in Exodus chapter 4. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Exodus 6, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Here it is again, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. See, friends, he is delivering the Israelites so that they may serve him and be his people. God's plan has a purpose. In other words, God loves the Israelites and they belong to him. 
in our home, we have a sign on our, like just to the left-hand side of our door, and it's meant for our children in particular as they leave every single time. And it communicates a simple and yet profound reality that we want our children to always remember and never forget. Here's what the sign says. You are loved and you belong. You are loved and you belong. Friends, true love always connects. So you can't be truly loved without belonging, and you cannot ever really belong unless you are truly loved. They, they go together. You are loved and you belong. See, God's love for us connects us to him in such a way that we belong to them. So he's saying, you are my people. I love you and you belong to me. So Israel, you are loved and you belong. Family of God, you are loved and therefore beautifully and miraculously you belong. You belong to God. See, God did not send Moses to deliver his people in order that they could go be free to do whatever they want as some purposeless, disconnected people. That would not be love. God is saying, I'm delivering you, motivated by my love, but now you, be- but you belong to me. You're connected to me. See, true freedom is not disconnected. Being free to just do whatever you want is not true freedom. Now, I know that sounds contradictory because we've grown up in a culture that likes to sell a lot of half-truths. So our culture, in particular American culture, says that true freedom means you go do whatever you want to do. It's, it's freedom without constraint. But that's, that's only one half of the coin. That is freedom from external tyranny. And that is part of freedom. And so it sounds true because it is true, but it's only half the truth. Our culture only teaches us half of the beauty of true freedom. So we speak of freedom from oppression or freedom from constraint. But this aspect of freedom, as beautiful and wonderful as it is, is only halfway there. And without the other half of freedom, this truncated or shortened freedom will devolve into a tyranny of another kind. It will devolve into a kind of internal tyranny, a tyranny of autonomy. Roberts and Wilson in their book, Echoes of Exodus, say it like this. In the scriptures, more emphasis is placed on the freedom for. Freedom for worship, freedom for flourishing, freedom for growth and obedience and glory. Human beings are not designed to be free from all constraint, Slaves to nothing but our own passions, triumphantly enthroned as our own masters, even our own gods. Everybody serves somebody. That's just a fundamental truth in the world. We are not free to serve nothing. We will, we will, we will serve someone. It's wired into our DNA. And so the point of the Exodus is not just for Israel to find deliverance from serving the old master. It's for them to find delight in serving a new one. And serving the Lord. See, without God, if we are left to our own self-rule, you will find yourself falling into new forms of bondage. And you know it's true. 
Again, Roberts and Wilson are helpful. Listen to this list. No matter how often we experience liberation from constraints or limitations or oppression, we will find ourselves falling into new forms of bondage. So we get free from boredom, but then we fall into the slavery of distraction. We pursue liberty from prohibitions, but with that freedom, we just find new addictions. We escape repression and become enslaved to lust. We are released from isolation and fall captive to peer pressure and the power of the online mob. We pursue liberty from constraints upon our natures and will fall into the bondage of untrained passions. The only way, friends, to be truly free from external and internal tyranny is to be delivered into the devotion of the Lord. Another helpful analogy might be if you pull weeds from a flower bed and you just leave this like beautiful fertile soil there, what will happen? New weeds are just going to pop up. That's the point. You might free this flower bed from one form of weed, but another one will quickly take root there unless that garden is tended by a good gardener. And that's what it means to be given to the Lord. This is why the second half of Exodus focuses on the Ten Commandments and what devotion to God looks like. In fact, most people, when they think about the book of Exodus, they just think about getting people out of slavery. And it, they think the book just ends when they leave. It's like they, they, they cross the Red Sea. That's the book of Exodus. That's only the first part. The rest of the book of Exodus is teaching them how to be the people of God. It is so American of us to think that the book of Exodus ends with the crossing of the Red Sea, right? The people get free into the book. Oh, Ten Commandments, the law, like that, that, that part's like the boring part of Exodus. No, no, that's teaching them to be the people of God. It's showing them what devotion to God looks like. Friends, God saves his people by grace through faith and then graciously teaches them how to live with Godward devotion to him because that's what true freedom looks like. Deliverance is never for self-autonomy, self-rule, but always for Godward devotion. That is why God redeems. Moses the one who was drawn out of the water, he will be the one to do what? Draw God's people out of Egypt. But that drawing out is not for nothing. Deliverance, we are never delivered into nothingness, but delivered into knowing, loving, and serving the Lord. I'll say it again. Deliverance is never for self-autonomy, but for Godward devotion. That's the purpose of deliverance. He draws us out in order that we might be drawn into relationship with him. Exodus will teach us that true freedom is nothing less than the restoration of right relationship between creature and creator. Think about it. If you could summarize Genesis, it's humans and God, God creates the world and humans and then they break it very quickly. It's like handing a kid like an expensive vase. Immediately they just drop it and break it. That's what we did. And then Exodus is like how that relationship begins to be restored again. That's what true freedom looks like. Exodus will point us to the reality of John 8. Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And so here's what Jesus says. If the son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. Exodus will teach us what true Christian freedom 
looks like. We are never delivered into self-rule or lawlessness. God's redemption is never without aim or purpose. We are always redeemed into relationship. We are redeemed into relationship, delivered for devotion. One of my big prayers is that God would use our study through the book of Exodus to help us understand, believe, and live out this truth. Now we come to our second theme, the pattern of redemption. Exodus 15, 13. This is Moses' song right after the delivered. He says, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. See, after the people of God are delivered out of Egypt, they express their gratitude for devotion in the form of worship. There's a worship song right in the middle of the book. And verse 13 summarizes the whole book. He says, Lord, you were motivated by your love for us and your means of grace, and you've saved your people and carried them home. If you read from Exodus 1 to chapter 40, 40, you will see a pattern of redemption that will become this prototype of history. Let me give you a quick overview of the whole book. Chapters 1 to 5, you will see that the people of God have become enslaved. Their dignity has been stripped. They, they've been uh, enslaved into a life of bitterness and harsh labor. Their time is not their own anymore. They're only as valuable as what they can produce. And they are powerless to save themselves. There's nothing they can do about it. Chapters 6 to 12, you will start to see this battle between Pharaoh and the Lord. Pharaoh considers himself a god and the Lord will go, no, no, no. I am the Lord and there is no other. There will be a series of plagues. They seem kind of random, but they're not. Each one of them is attacking one of the Egyptian gods. And if you were to look at them collectively all together, he goes against the gods of the water, the gods of the earth, and the gods of the heavens. Why? To say, I am the Lord of every realm. There is no dominion that I am not the uh, supreme Lord over. I am sovereign over every facet of all creation. He's going to make Pharaoh small. He's going to declare his sovereignty over everything and give them a taste of judgment. Each time it's going, if you will not uh, uh, fall under the glad submission, this is the judgment you can expect. And yet Pharaoh is unmoved. His heart will become hard to the word of the Lord. And in the end, judgment will fall on Egypt through a final plague, the death of the firstborn son. Now, this is one of those plagues that comes over all of Egypt. It's like your ethnicity does not absolve you from this final judgment. But God gives word to his people that if they will take shelter by faith under the blood of the lamb, if they will find a perfect spotless lamb and they will literally take shelter under it, they, they paint it on their house and they are literally taking shelter inside this blood-marked home so that the angel of death will pass over them. Death is coming to Egypt to break the power of bondage. Death will be defeated by death, and only those who trust in God's plan of salvation will be saved. And so a spotless lamb is provided as a substitute for the firstborn son. There will be death in every home. It will either be the death of the firstborn son or the death of the lamb. And those who take shelter under the blood of the lamb will be saved. And after this last plague, Pharaoh, who does not listen to the word of the Lord, he suffers the loss of his firstborn son. 
and he releases his hold on the people of God, and they leave Egypt, ending their period of slavery, and in a beautiful act of mission, some Egyptians go, we want to go with that God. So some Egyptians leave with them. They give them all their wealth. They leave loaded, like carrying all this wealth. And then in chapters 13 to 18, we see God's presence with his people. He leads them by a pillar of cloud uh, by day and at night a pillar of fire. A, a visible, tangible representation of that God's presence is with them. And as they begin their journey of faith to the promised land, their faith in the Lord will be immediately challenged. Because after Pharaoh gets over the death of his son... Like hours later, he decides, you know what? I don't want to let all my slaves go. So he mounts up all the chariots and they go running after the people of God because slave masters don't let their slaves go that easy. And so Pharaoh chases after the Israelites and he corners them at the Red Sea. And again, in this moment where it seems all hope is lost, there's no way they can escape. God provides a way. He parts the sea to give the Israelites safe passage across the sea. And in an act of final judgment, as the uh, Egyptians pursue after them, you'll see the presence of the Lord go out from leading them and it will come behind them to block and protect them till every Israelite crosses through the sea and then the waters of judgment will pass over again and swallow up the Egyptians. And in the months that follow, Israel will begin their journey. The Lord will continue to provide for them. We'll see miracles of bread and meat provided in the middle of the wilderness. And they will have times where they trust and they depend on him. But they will also have times where they complain and falter. They will grumble against the Lord. In chapters 19 to 24, as we come to the middle of the book, the Lord, like a good father, begins to teach his children. Here's what life looks like in the family of God. We have some, uh, some men in our church who are about to become new fathers this year. And one of your responsibilities will be to teach your children what life looks like in your family. Here are the rules. Here's what's expected. Here's what wisdom looks like. Here's how to develop your character. Good fathers will instruct their children. The Lord is no different. He is the ultimate good father. He is giving instruction to his children so they don't have to guess. How cruel would it be if God said, I have some rules and regulations, some things you need to do in order to please me, but you got to guess what those are. you got to figure it out on your own. No, that would be terrible. He clearly states the rules and he clearly states out the consequences. We call them the Ten Commandments. He gives them a set of civil laws which outline a life of Godward devotion to the Lord and how they may live with each other. Because why? Deliverance always leads to devotion. So he tells them what that devoted life looks like. Chapters 25 to 31, God sets up the sacrificial system. Why? Because despite our best intentions, even the faithful will fail. Even the faithful will sin. So the sacrificial system becomes this way for the people to atone and receive grace and mercy from God. In his love, God has provided a way for ongoing grace for sin. So law and grace go hand in hand in the family of God. In chapters 32 to 34, we see the people of God can quickly forget the Lord and they fall back into old patterns of slavery. While Moses is away on Mount Sinai, the people of God will make a golden calf. Again, not a random structure. This was a, a god in the Egyptian pantheon. Moses is away. They're like, Moses hasn't been back in a while. Maybe he's gone. Maybe God killed him. Either way, we need a new god. Let's melt all of our jewelry in gold and make a new god. 
It's a devastating scene of disloyalty and unbelief. It shows us how belief and unbelief can live in the same heart at the same time. It shows our dire need of continual mercy and grace. And it shows us that the faithful life will be one of continued, ongoing repentance. And here's what's beautiful about this story. In his great glory, we see that the Lord is a God of steadfast mercy and grace. You would think God would just give up on this stiff-necked people, but he doesn't. He forgives them. And finally, in chapters 35 to 40, we see the construction of the tabernacle. It's this mobile temple. It's like, uh, it, it's, point, it, it's pointing back to a, the Garden of Eden when man would walk with God in the, in the cool of the day and enjoy his presence. It's pointing forward to a time when we'll live in the full presence of God. It's this mobile temple so that God's presence will remain with his people. Here we see a transformation has taken place. Israel has been transformed from slaves who build cities for the glory of Pharaoh to the people of God who build a tabernacle for God's glory. Now, when you consider all of that, tell me that that's not our story. I know it's Israel's story, but if you're listening and you're paying attention, it sounds just like our story as well. It is the pattern of redemption. Exodus is a story of redemption from slavery involving a blood sacrifice, a perfect substitute. It's a story of reconciliation with God, a great victory over sin and death, vindication through faith, union with God, adoption and priesthood. It's a story of how law and grace go together. It's a story of how uh, faithfulness and forgiveness work. In other words, Exodus gives us a pattern for understanding the Christian life. J. Alec Mateer, a great a Bible scholar once said, imagine you were to interview an Israelite coming out of the Red Sea on their way to Canaan, and you were like, hey, tell me what's happened. Here's what they would say. I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death and bondage, but I took shelter under the blood of the lamb, and my mediator led us out. We crossed over, and now we are on our way to the promised land, but we are not there yet. He has given us his law to make us a community and he's given us his tabernacle because you have to live by grace and forgiveness. And his presence is in our midst. And he is going to stay with us until we get home. Now, couldn't a Christian say the exact same thing? Their story is our story as well. I want us to learn this pattern of redemption so that it gets down into our soul, into our bones, so that we see it all over the Bible, and that it would point us to the truer and greater exodus made possible in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, third and finally, let's go to our final theme, the person of redemption. One of the main goals of the book of Exodus and really the whole Bible is to tell us about who God is. The scriptures are a gift of God's self-revelation, and chapter after chapter in Exodus, we will learn about the character, nature, and person of God as he reveals himself through the events of the Exodus. So at the burning bush, God will declare his divine name to Moses and his commitment to deliver his people. It's as if God is placing his signature firmly in the book of Exodus so that we can learn about who he is and what he has done. Throughout Exodus, God will demonstrate a power 
that is above and beyond every other God you could possibly imagine so that you learn to go, he is the Lord and there is no other. He will take on all the Egyptian gods to prove his superiority in every realm of creation so that by the time the people of God arrive at Sinai, they would know that he is the Lord and there is no other. They will see the immensity of his power, the unlimited scope of his sovereignty and hopefully producing them a right and proper fear of the Lord. The law itself even begins with a reminder of God's work of salvation in Israel so that they would learn that in his power, in his sovereignty, in his uh, uh, great glory and majesty, that all of that is being given and, and working uh, salvation in their lives. In Exodus 3.14, we'll learn about God's personal covenantal name. And there will be much more to be, to be said about that uh, at that time. But for now... When he says, I am that I am, we are seeing God make a remarkable statement about his unchanging, incomparable, eternal, self-existent nature. In other words, he is the God who was. He is the God who is. He is the God who will forever be. He is limitless and boundless. He has no constraints. He has no rival. He has no equal. There is no one who can compare to him. He needs nothing. He needs no one. He is the God who is. If we were to learn that truth, how much would that keep us from looking to other lesser things to satisfy that God-shaped void in our heart? In Exodus 15, 11, Moses says it like this. He says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, and doing many wonders? See, after seeing the amazing redemption and the power of the Lord to deliver them out of the exodus and parting the, uh, uh, the, the seas, Moses says, who's like you? Like, and the answer is, no one. There is no one like our Lord. In Exodus 34, after the golden calf fiasco, Moses asks the Lord, hey, show me your glory. He's just experienced God forgive his people. He's experienced the faithfulness of God. And he's just, he's just full. And he's like, God, you're so glorious. I, I, I just, I want to know a part of that. And here's what he says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. When, God, when Moses asks, show me your glory, he says, I am a God who is uh, merciful and gracious, full of steadfast love. And at the same time, I'm also serious about sin. And my glory is found when you understand those two truths. See, he's not a pushover. We looked at it in the New City Catechism today. He's not just going to sinfully overlook sin. He's not an unjust God. He will, he, he will bring righteousness to bear. You can trust him. He's a just judge. At the same time, he's also merciful, gracious, slow to anger. And his glory is found as we understand how those two things could be true at the same time. In the burning bush of chapter 3, 
you'll see the pillar of fire as God leads his people. That's another theme about his character is you see uh, this fire. He's the, he's the pillar of fire leading the people. Then there'll be this fire that comes down as the tabernacle is dedicated. It shows us the unapproachable holiness of God. In the same way that you can't just glibly put your hand in fire or you'll get burned, you can't just glibly walk into the presence of God and approach his holiness. And yet this unapproachable holy God desires to be with his people. Friends, Exodus is an invitation to know God and all of his glory. His supreme power over every realm of creation. His seemingly unapproachable holiness. The fact that he um, uh, calls sinners to account. That he is righteous. That he is a just judge. And yet, at the same time, you can trust him. And he desires a relationship with you. His holiness is inexhaustible. And yet, he wants to be near to his people. Exodus is an invitation to know that God. To receive that invitation and be found in who he is. Exodus will challenge us to receive God as he reveals himself to be, not the fabricated God that we want. And it's only by receiving God as he has revealed himself that we can truly know him, love him, and follow him. I pray that God would use our time in Exodus to teach us about the person and the character and the nature of God. So as we close, remember what Paul says in Romans 15, 14. He's he's looking back at the Old Testament. He's saying what was written in former days, that's the Old Testament, was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. If we will give ourselves to the book of Exodus, we will become a people marked by endurance and hope. See, the Exodus is not simply the story of what happened to the Israelites a long time ago. It is their story. It is their history. But it is also our story. It is our history. Because all who believe by grace through faith in Jesus become, Galatians tells us, children of Abraham. So the Exodus is our family history. It is defining history. It can become identity-shaping history. Just like the American Revolution begins and shapes American history, so does the Exodus begin and define our Christian history. It would be near to impossible to overstate the importance of the book of Exodus, not only on the rest of the Bible, but for the New Testament's understanding of the cross. And so I pray that the Lord would use our time in Exodus to see his glory and power and love for his people.